Matthew chapter 9, and this morning, for those of you who were not in this service, we were in the first part of Matthew chapter 9, but I'm going to look to the last part of Matthew chapter 9, and we're going to talk about the disciple. We've been talking about the disciple for weeks. What's the difference between a Christian and a disciple? That's how we started it off. A disciple is called, the disciples call uh, to, last week was follow and obey. And then we had another one on the disciples call to what? I can't remember right now. But anyway, we're going to look at another aspect of the disciples call this evening. The disciples call to learn. That was the second one. The disciples call to learn and grow. So here's the next one. Matthew chapter 9. Let's stand together, please. We're going to begin reading in verse 32. As they went out, behold, they brought to him a dumb man possessed with the devil. We mentioned that and emphasized this morning about the importance of bringing people to him. They went out, behold, they brought to him a dumb man possessed with the devil. By the way, that doesn't mean that everybody that's dumb is demon-possessed. You understand that, right? Just so you know that. (laughs) Some of them may be. Verse 33, And when the devil was cast out, the dumb spake. And the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never so seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, Here we go. The Pharisees said, He casteth out devils to the prince of the devils. Don't ever assume that just because you're doing something the Lord wants you to do, that there's not going to be any opposition or negative opinions, right? Don't assume that. It's never been that way before, and it's never going to be that way. It's not uncommon for someone to have an adverse opinion. So the Pharisees were masters at that. Verse 35, And Jesus went about unto all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. And when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again tonight for this time and we trust you, Lord, to make it profitable, to bless it. We pray that, Lord, you'd work in our lives. We pray that you'd help us have a better understanding of your will for us. And not just an understanding, but an a, a inclination, a tendency, a a predisposition, Lord, that we would act upon whatever you give us, the truth that you give us, that we would apply to our life. We feel sometimes the need, Lord, just to be nudged from knowing stuff to obeying stuff. And so we pray that you'd work in our midst tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This is a fairly typical time, really, in the Gospels, a fairly typical time in the life of Jesus. 
But I want to just look at that very subject for a moment and put this, what we're talking about tonight, into context. And to do that, I want to back up just a little bit. Go to Matthew chapter 8. And I just want to look at some isolated verses that kind of give us a feel uh, for what's going on. In Matthew chapter 8 and verse 2, it says, Behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will, be thou clean. <coughs> and immediately his leprosy was cleansed. In verse 5 it says, of Matthew 8, And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion, beseeching him, and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. That's the description of his condition. And in verse 13 of that chapter, it says, Jesus said to the centurion, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. Very next verse, verse 14 says, When Jesus was coming to Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother laid and sick of a fever. And he touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she arose and ministered unto them. And when evening when the even was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word, and he healed all that were sick. And then if you drop down to verse 25, <coughs> and his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we perish. They're out on the Sea of Galilee, of course. And he said unto them, Why are you so fearful, O you of little faith? And he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. But the men marveled, saying, What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the seas obey him? And then in verse 28, he came into the other side of the country of the Gergesenes, and there met him two possessed with the devils. And we're familiar with that story. They, were, they, were, they lived in the tombs, exceeding fierce. No man could pass by that way. They were so terrifying. Behold, they cried out, saying, What have we to do with thee? Jesus, thou Son of God, art thou come hither to torment us before the time? And if you read on down, the Bible tells us um, that he delivered that man and set him free, which is what Jesus came to do. Chapter 9, we covered that this morning. This paralyzed man that was brought to Jesus, the first part of chapter 9. And if you were to drop down in chapter 9 to verse 18... While he spake these things, there came a certain ruler and worshipped him, saying, My daughter is now even dead, but come and lay thy hand upon her, and she shall live. And Jesus began to follow, began to follow them. And while they were following this man, verse 20, they were interrupted by a woman who had this disease that for 12 years had plagued her. And we know how that turned out, that she touched the hem of his garment, and she was, she was healed. And, um, and it also, when they, he finally got in verse 23 to this ruler's house, then uh, verse um, 25 says, When the women put forth, he went in and took her by the hand, and the maid arose. I'm trying just to establish a point. This is the life of Jesus. In verse 27, when Jesus left there, departed thence. That means when he left that place, two blind men followed him, crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. 
And when he was coming to the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Believe you that I'm able to do this? They said unto him, Yea, Lord, then touch ye their eyes, and said, According to your faith, be it unto you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus charged them to keep it a secret, but they couldn't keep it a secret. And that brings us to our text in verse 32. And so, again, I just do that to establish the fact that Jesus was busy, right? He was busy in the lives of people. And he didn't go anywhere where there weren't needy people. And, it's, and Jesus never tired of helping people. It says an interesting thing in a text that we read earlier there in, in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 32 and following. It says in verse uh, 35, And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. So what is Jesus doing? He's teaching. Look in verse 35. He's teaching. He's preaching. He's healing. He's ministering to people and multitudes of people. And in that context, in that, with that as a setting, all these people Jesus is helping, doesn't matter where he's at, what side of the Sea of Galilee he's on, small towns, populated areas, doesn't matter where he is, Jesus is helping people. And it says then in verse 36, we read it a moment ago, but when he saw the multitude, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Jesus cared about people, right? I mean, Jesus cared about people. Sometimes people get under our skin. Sometimes people, this never happens to you, of course, but sometimes people can annoy us. Sometimes we can be burdened by people, but Jesus, Jesus helped people. These, he saw them as being weak. It says in verse uh, 36, he saw them because they fainted. They were very weak. They were tired. They were weary. In my mind, I'm thinking, aren't you weary? I mean, you know. I think I'd be saying, could I have a day off, please? But Jesus just kept on doing what Jesus does, helping people. He not only saw them as being weary, he saw them being without direction. He, he, he had compassion on them because they were fainting, weary, weak. But also they were scattered as sheep having no shepherd. They needed direction. They needed leadership. You know, seeing the needs of people motivated Jesus. Now, you know, I don't know that Jesus ever got overwhelmed. But just thinking about it overwhelms me. You know, the kind of... He wasn't just dealing with people that had a runny nose. or He's talking about people with demonized people. You know, he's down, these are hard cases. People who have leprosy, pretty serious condition. All these people brought to him. And in that context, he addressed his disciples. Now, we're talking about discipleship. We're talking about what is a disciple? What does a disciple do? What is a disciple called to do? So he addresses his disciples in verse 37. Look again. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous. But the labors are few. Pray therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth labors into his harvest. 
I take the time tonight to look at these cases to try to look at what Jesus, the world he lived in. He goes to Peter's house, I'm sure to rest or whatever, and Peter's mother-in-law is sick. Wherever he goes, we didn't look at this, but another time he just, he went, he got his disciples away to rest. And you can visualize this on the Sea of Galilee. He just wanted to go away from the people, and yet they followed him around the shore. Because wherever he was, they wanted to be. In that context, he said, the harvest is great. Fellas, can you see how many people there are? Can you see the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers, they're few. And they're very few because at that point, it's just about him. He's the, he's the, main, he's the main laborer. They were with him, but you'll see in chapter 10, chapter 10 is when he sent the 12 out. And so... So he, he is pretty much trying to minister, and not trying to, but ministering to all these people. As I said in chapter 10 and verse 1, just look at that if you would please. And when he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits. He's going to pass this power out, <coughs> delegate them with, with, with this special power that only the apostles had against unclean spirits, to cast them out, to heal all manner of sickness, all manner of disease. It gives us the name of these twelve. And we're familiar with the names of these twelves, Peter and Andrew and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew and Thomas. And he gives us the names of these people. And in verse 5, these twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go into the way of the Gentiles and, and gave them their job description, their assignment. He sent these out. So overwhelmed would be the word that I would use, but he was, he was so burdened about so many people and so many needs that now he's going to deploy additional laborers to go into the harvest because he wanted his disciples to be engaged. He never wanted his disciples to just be spectators, just to watch him, just to observe, just to enjoy it. I said this morning, I would, that would be, wouldn't it be wonderful just to watch and see what he's going to do? I mean, that would be incredible. But now, so now he's multiplied his ministry by 12, right? He's not the only one doing it. He gave these 12 the ability to do what he did. And they're going to do it, by the way. They're going to do all kinds of miracles because he had gave them that power. But will that be enough? Is that adequate to have 12 people doing what he was doing? Let's go back, if we could, to chapter 9 and verse 37. So what did Jesus say to his disciples? The harvest is plenteous, the labors are few. He didn't just say, I'm going to dispatch you 12 and we'll be able to do this. He didn't say that. He said, pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. The harvest is great. It's plenteous. Can you not see that when you read that? I mean, the people were everywhere. Everywhere he went. I mean, he didn't have social media. He didn't have an advanced team. He just went and they were everywhere. They were coming out of the woodwork. And... It's the same is true today. The same, in essence, is true today. Everywhere Jesus went, there were needy people. 
you, there was no lack of prospects. There was no lack of opportunities. But the laborers were few. The word labor reminds us that the ministry requires effort. It's estimated that at the time that Jesus was, what we're reading about right here in Matthew, at that time in history, there were about 300 million people in the world. Now that sounds like a lot of people, but that would be compared to the population just of this country now. 300 million people. Of those 300 million people, about 45 million lived in what, they, what we would know as the Roman Empire. So only a fraction of those people lived in the world that we're even familiar with. So we think about Jesus doing all this stuff and we're thinking, man, he is getting it done, right? He's getting it done. He's healing people. He's raising people from the dead. He's doing all kinds of amazing things. But he's confined to Judea, Samaria, and Galilee, a small little region. The population of the world was 300 million. And here's the thing, and all this is really introduction. The gospel wasn't just for Judea. The gospel wasn't just for Galilee or Samaria. The gospel wasn't even just for the Roman Empire. The gospel was for the world. They started out with one, then they went to 12. But, but in this passage, I don't think Jesus was panicked. I don't think he was surprised. But he communicated a definite urgency. In other words, let's put it, let's frame it like this. He was like he was telling these disciples, we're doing a lot of stuff, but we're never going to get the job done the way we're doing it. Does that make sense to you? It's just not going to happen. So so what did he tell them to do? He tell them to pray. He said, "The the harvest is great. The harvest truly, in verse 37, the harvest truly is plenteous. Harvest means, harvest doesn't just mean it's some time in the agricultural calendar. Harvest means it's time to bring in the crop. The, the, the crop needs to be brought in and it's, and it's, and it's immense. And timing is of the essence now, it's one thing if you lose, it's one thing if you would lose a crop of beans or, or a, a corn crop. You know, I'm, Lord willing, I'm going to be driving tomorrow up to Sioux Falls. And this time of the year, they're bringing in those corn crops. Those combines are working. They're harvesting. It's a, those pickers, even into the night, you can drive. When this harvest time, they pull out all stops. And we've seen them many times in the middle of the night. They're out there with their bright headlights. Harvest. You know why? Because timing is of essence. It's harvest time. He didn't, just, he didn't just say there are a lot of people out there. He said there are people out there that need to be reached now. So it's one thing to lose a crop of beans. But what about losing a generation of eternal souls? Because that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about bringing in the corn crop. He's not talking about that. He's talking about people. 
And, and so G, to Jesus, there was a sense of urgency about that. You know, things, the, at harvest time, things are time sensitive. Some of you people in this room know that. Some of the people think, there are people in this room I know like, would be like I am. There are things I have to get done before winter time. You know, I planted some grass seed on Monday last week. Because I know if it's going to grow, if it's going to get started, it's got to get started before frost. Because the war, in other words, harvesting and things having to do with agriculture have a have a sensitivity as far as time. And this wasn't the only time Jesus talked about this urgency. In John chapter four, you remember about the conversion of the woman at the well, and uh, Jesus Jesus said, "Say you not there four months, and then cometh the harvest." Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. He said, just look out there. Just look on the fields. It's white already under harvest. In John chapter 9, Jesus said, we must work while it is day. Because there's a night coming when no man can work. In other words, we won't always have this opportunity. We there was an urgency about it. Now, now, think with me tonight. This is really what the message is sort of about. Do we, do we ever think like that? Do we ever, when we think about missions, we think about evangelism, we think about ministry, far too often we think about it in terms of, I know there are things that need to be done today, but they'll be here next year, they'll be here next month. But that's really not the way Jesus looked at it. To Jesus, there was a sense of urgency. If we're going to do anything, we must be getting busy about it now. And so what, he do, so what did he do there in verse 38? I hope you have your Bible still open there, Matthew chapter 9. He said, pray ye therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth labors into his harvest. He didn't say, you guys, I've been doing this. I've been, I've been doing it night and day. I've been doing it relentlessly. I've been doing it tirelessly. But now we're going to multiply our manpower by 12, and I think we'll have it covered. No, he says, you need to pray that God will get more people involved. Can you see that in the text? That's exactly what he's saying. Pray for that, that God will get more people. He urged them to pray. Understanding the daunting task of getting the gospel to every person and the time-sensitive nature of the fact that people can't wait forever to hear the gospel and to be saved, he beckoned to his disciples to pray. Right? And pray for what? And pray to whom? Look what he said in verse 38. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest. I mean, obviously God is the Lord of the harvest, right? It's his harvest. Pray for the Lord of the harvest. There's someone that's more interested in the harvest than all of us combined, and that's God. He's interested in this harvest. He sent his son to die for these people. The people in our world, the people in our generation, the people around the world, he's interested. So he tells his disciples, he urges his disciples to pray to the Lord of the harvest, to the God. Remember in John chapter 15, where it says that my father is the husbandman. My father is like the landowner. The harvest belongs to him. Pray that he will send forth labors into his harvest. The disciples are to pray for labors. So, as we think about the call of discipleship, answering the call, what, is it, what does it mean to be a disciple? What have we been called to? We've been called to learn and grow. It's a disciple. He's a learner. 
We've been called to follow and obey. We've been called by God to follow him. And thirdly, we've been called to engage, and that's tonight's thought, to engage and care. Jesus said they're everywhere around us. There's no shortage of people, but there is a shortage of workers. And he said, I want you to start doing what I'm doing, and I want you to pray for more people to do what we're doing, because the only way we're going to get the job done is to engage. We've got to get involved, and we've got to care about people. Jesus couldn't do this alone. I don't mean that in any way to be derogatory, but Jesus couldn't do it alone. Jesus cared deeply for people, and he worked tirelessly. But there was so much left undone. I mean, think about it. Jesus never left in his earthly ministry that small little region that we call Israel, that would be Judea on the south, Samaria above that, and then Galilee. You could drive the entire length of that in just a few hours, right, Ross? Ross has been there. You can drive the entire length of that area in just a few hours. Jesus never left that area. And there was just a fraction of the people that lived there that needed to be reached. It sounds, to me it sounds almost hopeless, doesn't it? So what was the plan? Here's the plan. Jesus said, I want you to start doing what I'm doing. And I want you to pray for more people to do what we're doing. It's called discipleship. It's called making disciples. And, it, and to do it, you have to be engaged. Engaged means you're involved. We have to get people, Jesus said, let's pray for people to be engaged. The call for disciples to care for people and be engaged has never been rescinded. And, and I know that this was unique. These are the 12 here. But if you'll send, read a little over in the Gospel of Luke, there were 70 sent out. That wasn't the 12, there were 70 sent out. They just kept making disciples. At this time, they're reaching people, reaching people, making disciples. Here's, here's the bottom line. The work of missions requires people. Many people. More people. It requires people. This ought to be a concern of every disciple. Um, I'm glad for discipleship that teaches doctrinal lessons. That's a very important step of discipleship. People need to know what they believe. People know what the Bible teaches. But our discipleship has not ended because somebody learned some things from the Bible. Our discipleship has not ended until the people learn how to do the things Jesus told us to do and they're teaching other people how to do the things Jesus told us to do. Is that right? The work of the ministry never gets done just because we sit in the church. As a matter of fact, nothing that we're doing tonight is going to help the work of the ministry go forward unless we take what we're learning and use it. Put it to, put it to work. Start, start doing it. Start teaching our children, teaching our sons and daughters, teaching other people, you know, learning the Bible, learning to engage engage the world, engage the community, engage people where we work. This ought to be the concern of every disciple. It ought to be the concern of every family. Why do we have children? 
Why do you have children? Why do you, yeah, well, you just, you just, it's a part of life. No, we have children because we want to teach our children what we've learned, that they can do the things that God wants us to do, that we can transfer that to our children. That's why we have children. Not just so they can play soccer or play basketball or volleyball, nothing wrong with those things. But the purpose of having children is not to make athletes, it's to make disciples. And yet how many families are really taking that seriously? That's what, that's what we need to think about. The disciple has been called to engage, engage in the community, engage with people, and care about people. I mean, if there, what if there was a, a compassion um, monitor that you and I could have our compassion level tested? How much do we really care? About people. I mean, does it really matter if people get saved? Does it really matter? Do something really difficult right now. I'm going to ask you to do something very difficult. Just ask yourself, how important is it to me that people get saved, that my neighbors get saved, that people that I engage with in, the, in my community, in my world, if we're not engaged, if we're not engaged, the work is not going to be done. And no, nobody in our church believes it's just a handful of a few people responsibility, you know, to do the work. But we ought to be, asked, we ought to be pushing ourselves to say, what does God want me to do? How, how can I be involved? And I know sometimes people look at that in a, I think probably in a, maybe they're sincere, but they're not really thinking it through. You know, the preacher's always wanting people to do more. It's not really about us. It's not about us. It's about, it's about what God wants, about this harvest. He's the Lord of the harvest. He wants it to happen. It's about people who need to hear. You know, the commands of Scripture about serving the Lord are not just to some elite group of what I call one of these sermons, a ninja, ninja Christian, you know. They're just these elite people who are stronger and bigger and better and faster and smarter. No, it's to everybody. These, these, these things in the Bible are to everybody. For instance, Paul ended the, 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 the first epistle that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. He ended in chapter 15 with these words, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Always. Now, how much is always? How, young person, I'll give you a little vocabulary test here. How, how, how much is always? I can just see by Jonathan, he already has the answer figured out. Always. Always. All, these are, he, wrote to, he wrote to disciples, to church members. He wrote to church members, always. And then he used the word abounding. Now what does the word abounding mean? Does abounding mean... Um, I'm going to be very careful and maybe I could squeeze, give God 15 minutes every other week. No, abounding means it's overflowing. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. I don't think, I don't think we ought to get out of balance in our life. I don't think we ought to put all our emphasis on church and ministry and nothing on family. I think that would be improper. But I think our, we have to look at the fact that as Christian people, as disciples... The work of the Lord is what we're about. 
It's what, it's what we're about. And, and, and it's not just some people that are to be involved and engaged. It's all of us. Because there's a harvest to be reached. That was the whole point of the urgency of Jesus in Matthew chapter 9. I thought about this verse in Proverbs. It says, He that gathereth in summer is a wise son. But he that sleepeth in harvest is a son that causeth shame. You know, when you read in the book of the Revelation, uh, Jesus addressed local churches. Laodicea, you know that, Smyrna, um, Philadelphia, Ephesus. He addressed individual churches. This is what he would say to them. I know thy works and thy labor. He wasn't saying that just to the preacher. He said it to the people. I know what you're doing. And you know, as, I, as I'm saying that, and I'm looking around this room, I'm thinking about all the different ways many of our people are involved in ministry. He knows that. He knows your works. He knows your labor. But personalize that and don't just make that our church. What about you? If God looks at my labor, if God looks at your labor, what does he see as far as your ministry labor, your willingness to serve the Lord? And all this is about... A disciple has got to engage and care about people. So how much are we? And, I, and this was one of the lessons that I wanted to teach in this series on discipleship. And I think it fits in the fact that we're getting ready for our missions conference. You know, how, how much are we engaged personally? How much are we praying how, much, how often do we pray for our missionaries? Pray for our missionaries by name. I'm impressed sometimes with our children. I'm not talking about our children, but our children in our church. How, how much these children know about our missionaries and who the missionary of the week is. I was in the teen department today, and uh, Justin was quizzing the teenagers about who the missionary of the week was this past week, Brother Don cloud and someone came up and said it was the clouds and somebody else knew well what are their names and where what is their field i mean how much are we praying for our missionaries praying for them by name how many how i mean do we even know who the missionaries are are we are we acquainted with them do we earnestly pray for laborers that's what jesus said this look at this world that we live in and look how much there is to do and jesus said i'm doing i'm doing everything that i can do and i want you to do the same thing that i'm doing but while we're doing that let's be praying for god to give us more people that are doing the things that we're doing if you couldn't if you couldn't pray for anything else regarding the ministry This is a biblical prayer request. Jesus said, pray for this. Pray for laborers. Pray for the Lord to send forth laborers into this harvest. How much are we giving? You know, the work of the ministry is expensive. When you talk to a missionary, take a missionary aside sometime when they're here. And they won't be offended by this. Just ask them. What is it? How much does it cost to get to where you're going? You know, just the cost of flying sometimes to where these people are. When the, when the Moors go to Africa, they're going, this, I guess that's a, maybe the longest flight, one of the longest flights you can take, right? It's amazing. They don't give those tickets out free, you know what I'm saying? What does it cost to be involved? 
to, to serve the Lord. And, and how do, are they supposed to pay that themselves? No, they, they have churches that support them, that help them with that. The work of the ministry costs something. You ought to, you ought to do this. You ought to look at your own budget. How much you spend on leisure? How much you spend on various incidentals? I, I just read a statistic. Uh, Brother Castor, a missionary that we support, that's also in Botswana, he, um, he mentioned uh, a, an, on social media the other day how much in America, I think it was in America, we spend in America on cosmetics, on these kinds of things, on coffee, on eating out, on leisure, on hobbies, compared to what we give to missions. It was embarrassing. It should be shameful. It ought to be shameful for a person who claims to be a follower of Jesus to have, have money in their budget for all these things. I have to have my nails done. I've got to get my pedicure. I've got to have this. And yet, oh, I don't have any money to give to missions. It ought to be shameful. Right? Be a good time for an amen. Well, we need to be involved. We need to be engaged. You know? How about going? How about witnessing? How about sharing the gospel? You say, well, I'm, I'm kind of timid or whatever. But you, we can work through that. We can, we can overcome those things. We have to take this seriously. Jesus said there's an urgency. Men, there's an urgency about this. We've got to get more people involved. We have to take it seriously. And we have to take it personally. And by the way, just so you know... God does not need for us to do His work. He'll do His work. God needs for us to do our work. Right? The things that God wants us to do. It's daunting. There are some places in the world that if you look at the ratio of missionary to population, there's less than one missionary. Think about this. For every million people. Less than one missionary for a million people. Isn't that staggering? It's staggering. And you can't, none of us would say, okay, I'll take them. I'll take the rest of those people. But we have to take seriously our responsibility. We have to. We should. We We can't just be disengaged from this matter of evangelism and witnessing and discipleship. And we have to overcome things. We have to overcome our fears. We have to overcome our inhibitions. We've got to get out of our comfort zone. It's not always comfortable doing those things. Sometimes we have to overcome our laziness, our selfishness. I'm not against any of the things that we do as families, but I'm telling you, there's something wrong when we have time to do all this other stuff, but we have no time for ministry and no time for serving the Lord. We have to, we have to break out of these, these habits we have. And sometimes they're cultural. And sometimes they're personality issues. Jesus never called anybody to be a hermit. He called us to be engaged, to talk to people, to help people, to minister to people. Jesus didn't just call extroverts. I never, I've never seen this in the Bible where Jesus 
only calls extroverts to be involved in ministry. No, he called all of his disciples to be engaged, to care and be involved. Wouldn't it be something? Wouldn't it be something if every person who really considers themselves to be a follower of Christ would get involved in some real way in ministry? Wouldn't that be something? And there's something that everybody could do. If, if, if you couldn't do anything, you say, well, I just don't have time and I don't have the ability and I can't, I'm, I'm crippled or whatever. You could sit down and just write letters to people and put a gospel track and just send it to their mailbox. There's something everybody could do. And I'm going to, I'm going to make a statement, and you may disagree with it, but I, I, think, I firmly believe it. If Jesus calls us to engage and care, then every one of us ought to be doing it, and there's something we can do. And when those excuses come to your mind, well, I don't have time, or you just need to realize if Jesus said do it, we can do it. Right? We have to work at it. We have to work at building relationships. We have, to, we have to work at caring for people. And sometimes people can, like I said, people can get under your skin. Do you know what that means? Do I need to explain what that means? <laughs> the only people, as far as I can recall, the only people that Jesus ever got sideways with or were, were the religious crowd that were Pharisees and hypocrites. It never was, peop- never was the people who were hurting or the people who were stumbling or the people who had fallen or the people who failed. That was, he never got upset with those people. It was the people who were hypocrites and, and religious people, proud, arrogant, blind, lost religious people. What could you do as a mom, what could you do as a dad? What could you do as a single person, as a teenager? What could you do? Say, I'm going to start getting, I'm going to start engaging in the ministry, in somebody's life, in some part of our ministry. I, I appreciate the fact, Brother Sides is out in the foyer now. I appreciate the fact that sometimes he takes teenagers over to the teen, to the children's church and gets them doing things. Gets them involved. And they like doing it. Because that means they get out of this service, right? <laughs> Folks, we've got to get involved. You've got to get engaged. Tell, you know, and you may be sitting there thinking, I know I need to, I just don't know how. Well, tonight will be a good night. Let's just pray and ask God to show. God, how could I get involved? Some way directly involved. Praying, supporting a ministry, get involved in a ministry. And we, ought not, we normally think about things like going to the nursing homes, and that's a great thing. It, it's, a, it's a part of it, or going to the jails. But there are people, there are men in our church that could go into the jails just to go as a, as a, as a support with the people who are going in and doing the work. There are things you could do. 
the things you could do. And I'm, I'm not lingering because I just want to keep you. I'm lingering because I want you to think about this. I want you to think about it. What should I be doing? What could I be doing? And obviously we ought to be praying, as I said earlier, we ought to be knowing our missionaries, praying for our missionaries, encouraging our missionaries, sending them a note. We ought to be giving to the ministry. Everybody in this room should be giving to the work of the ministry. By the way, I've been encouraged seeing teenagers make commitments to this Together We Can Building Fund thing. Teenagers. It's good, isn't it? Everybody can. Everybody can be involved. What can I do to help people? There are ministries around here you could get involved in. A disciple's call, a part of his call is a call to engage and care for people. Amen?